When Jesus heard the awful news of his cousin John the Baptist's pointless murder at the hands of King Herod, he had wanted to get away and mourn in private with his disciples. He got in a boat with them to cross the Sea of Galilee to get to a remote place. But when they had made it to shore, however, a crowd of people was already waiting. So many people were eager to see Jesus that they had gone around on foot to catch him when he arrived. But instead of shooing them away or getting all upset because he didn't get the solitude that he had wanted, Jesus had compassion on the people and healed them and taught them. Then the events of last week's gospel reading happened. It got late in the day, and the disciples asked Jesus to send the people to the local towns and villages to get supper. Jesus instead told the disciples, No, you guys feed them. They started with five loaves and two small fish, and after more than 5,000 people ate, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers. The people, like the disciples, were amazed and thrilled to be provided for in such an amazing and miraculous way. A free dinner is great, but this wasn't just any ordinary free dinner. They wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king so that he would keep providing for them just like that. They wanted a bread king. Of course, that's not what Jesus came to do. We talked last week about how we can trust God to provide for us and how Jesus feeding over 5,000 people in this miraculous way shows his power and his care to do just that. But he was on an even more important mission. He didn't simply want to provide for physical needs. He had to go to the cross to provide for us spiritually as well so that he could be the bread and water of eternal life himself. This is where we pick up today. It must have been a little bit of a frantic scene. Evening is falling and you have this huge crowd of thousands of people trying to physically get a hold of Jesus to literally make him their king. The disciples have just finished cleaning up leftovers and Jesus hurries them into the boat. You guys gotta go. Maybe he knew that the disciples were in danger of getting swept up in the moment, along with all the crowds, too. After all, we know how easy they got carried away and misunderstood what he was there to do. Anyways, Jesus got them into the boat and sent them on their way across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he slipped away from the crowd and finally found himself a quiet place on the mountainside to have that alone time with his heavenly father that he had wanted in the first place. We can only speculate what Jesus said to the father in prayer in ev- that evening. But what a day it had been. In his mind, he must have been dealing with both the gut-wrenching news about his cousin's murder, the thrill of the incredible success of feeding the 5,000 and the popularity that came with that, and then maybe even a little bit of frustration with the people for completely missing the point. Maybe a quick lesson we can take away from the fact that Jesus' response to all of these different things is a desire to talk to God the Father is that we too could also be eager to pray and be with our God alone in the good times, the bad times, and all the in-betweens as well. Late that night, Jesus looked out and saw the disciples in the middle of the lake. They had rowed out about three and a half miles or so. The lake's about eight miles, so they're roughly in the middle, and the wind had picked up. And the waves were pounding into their boat as they struggled to beat into the wind. And Jesus decided to go out to them. Naturally, he decided to go by foot. It was sometime during the fourth watch of the night. So between three and six in the morning, dark, but getting closer to dawn. And he was about to catch up to them when one of the disciples hunched over and straining at the oars must have spotted him. 
By the time they all saw him, the disciples were in a total panic. They started screaming. It's a phantasm, a ghost. The whole boatload of grown men were completely terrified. But can you really blame them? I mean, you're out in the middle of the water in the dead of night. It's dark out. It's wave, there's waves crashing around you. You've been working hard against the water. And there's someone suddenly there? It would make my blood run cold. This is that driving down the road at night in the dark and suddenly you spot someone on the sidewalk, but on steroids. Immediately, Jesus reassures them, Take courage. Don't be afraid. It's just me. The disciples recognized their teacher and calmed down. Seconds ago, they had been terrified he was some kind of ghost, probably wondering what kind of horrible things he might do to them in the middle of the sea. But now they were happy to let him clamber into the boat with them for the rest of the trip. But first, one more amazing thing. Peter, who had made the same assumption everyone else had, that Jesus was some sort of spirit or ghost with questionable intent at best, does something surprisingly bold, even for Peter. Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you on the water, he said. Now, this wasn't a test. Peter wasn't saying, Prove your Jesus and not a ghost by enabling me to do this. It was really more of a show of faith. Since I know it's you, Jesus, let me come to you on the water. I know you can. Jesus happily obliged. Come on out, he invited Peter. So Peter hopped out of the boat and started walking out toward Jesus, walking on water just like Jesus had. A few amazing steps later, though, and Peter remembered how bad the wind was, looked around at the waves, and got scared. He started to sink. As he sank into the water, he screamed out once again, Lord, save me. Jesus put out his hand and grabbed Peter. Helping him back up, Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It wasn't so much of a rebuke, so much as a gentle and tender question. Jesus knew who he was dealing with, and he knew how silly it was for Peter. Seconds before, he had been walking on water. He knew that he could do it. He knew that his Savior could let him do it. Why did he suddenly doubt? Jesus lovingly helped Peter back into the boat. And on top of all the miracles that had been happening already, as soon as they got into the boat, the wind and waves calmed down. The disciples were utterly amazed at everything that had happened and responded by simply worshiping Jesus. They acknowledged once again what they had already seen and known. Jesus is God's own son, God himself. Matthew's account of these events end there, but if you want a little bonus, you can look at John's account of the same story. John says that the boat immediately arrived on shore. There's some debate as to whether or not this is yet another miracle and that John meant the boat literally arrived the next second, somehow skipping across the rest of the lake, or if John simply meant now that the wind and waves had died down, They made it the second half of the way without any problem, without any further delay. Take it whichever way you like. Both are possible, but either way you take it, it was still quite the night. Is this maybe your favorite Bible story? It's one of the first ones we learn as children, and one of the most well-known miracles of Jesus. It's flashy, it's flamboyant, it's exciting. And it's also a great story for us to focus on as we wrap up discussing what it means to be a Christian because it gives us a really good picture of a major aspect of every Christian's life. And that is doubt. It shouldn't be a part of a Christian's life, and 
For us, it's super, super frustrating that it is because we even know better than to doubt. But don't doubt it. Doubt is a part of a Christian's life. Today we're going to look at how Christians handle doubts when they arise, and that means we're going to have to be open and honest with ourselves and with each other about doubt. We can't all pretend that every Christian just is 100% certain and confident all day, every day, about everything spiritual and everything physical. They always love God above everything else. They always find rest and peace in Jesus. They're always content to live as wheat among weeds. They always trust that God is going to provide. They always trust. They always have faith. They never, ever doubt. If we act like that, if we act like that's what who we are, we're really only going to alienate each other. If you think that you're alone because you're not sure about something, or because you have your doubts and that you can't be safe sharing those doubts and fears with your church family because, well, they expect you to be perfect all the time because that's how they are, or at least how they act, oh, you're in a horribly lonely place. We have to stop that act and be honest. Christians, unfortunately, do have doubts. You're not alone if you do. And church has to be a place that's safe for us to deal with those doubts. It's the safest place for us to deal with doubt. So let's talk about it a bit today. Doubt happens when there's conflict between a promise and some sort of limitation, whether it's a real or perceived limitation. I'll give you an example. One of the first exercises they have you do when you get your scuba license is to put your face in the water without a mask on and then try to breathe through your regulator. It wasn't really scary. You're only standing chest deep in a pool, but man, it was hard to get my brain to let my lungs take a deep breath. The instructor promised and my brain knew that the regulator would give me as much air as I could possibly ever want from the tank on my back, but my face was in the cold pool water and every time I've ever been face down in water, it really has been best for me not to try to inhale anything. Even though I knew better, there was still a part of me that instinctually doubted that I would be okay taking a breath and it made it really hard for me to do. Ultimately, I just had to force myself to do it. And eventually, it became almost normal to breathe underwater. As Christians, doubt happens when there is conflict or apparent conflict between the promises God makes and our own limitations and experiences. God makes such wonderful promises to you and me and tells us all sorts of amazing things. But we run up against our own limitations really quickly and doubt comes easy. God promises that he loves you and that he's going to care for you, but you don't see his hand directly. Just grocery stores and electric companies and paychecks. And sometimes it really doesn't seem like he's going to care for you at all. He promises you that he's forgiven all your sins, but your guilt still plagues you or you might still be experiencing the fallout from some wrong that you did. It might not ever completely heal. He tells you that his word is truth, but boy, that seems difficult to believe when there are so many other religions making the same claims. And the miracles and creation account are so contrary to what we can see today, the evidence we see in our world today. God gives us laws and guidance and tells us that they're for our good, but it seems like sometimes he's just withholding harmless joys and pleasures that could be ours. I mean, even the most basic thing, right? His existence in the first place. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't make that much sense or at least isn't something that we can feel. Christians have a unique way of dealing with these doubts. Instead of giving up and saying it's pointless 
or turning from God, and instead of spending all our time and energy and effort looking for ways to prove for ourselves and see for ourselves, and certainly instead of ending up in total despair and meaninglessness, Christians answer doubt with faith. But that's easier said than done, right? I mean, a person saying, you just have to have faith, doesn't always help that much, does it? Really, it's more likely to feel a little insulting, or at least annoying. Faith is the opposite of doubt, sure, but when you're worried about your salvation or whether this is all just made-up stories or how you can be sure that Christianity is true as opposed to all the other religions or how we can believe in creation when all the evidence seems to indicate evolution or whatever else, it sure doesn't feel very good or satisfying to just have someone say, I'll just believe more, have more faith. Christian's answer to doubt is faith, but that faith has to come from somewhere. Let's look again at the story of Jesus walking on water specifically Peter's example, to see how we can answer our doubts with faith. When Peter asked Jesus to let him come up on the water, Jesus invited Peter to do something pretty crazy, right? Walk on water. Peter was a fisherman. He knew a thing or two about water, and he knew a thing or two about the Sea of Galilee. I'm pretty sure he probably ended up in the Sea of Galilee at least once or twice, and it had never supported him enough to stand on it, much less walk. Still, Jesus invited him. Come. Maybe Jesus isn't inviting you to walk on water, but what is Jesus inviting you to do? That seems equally crazy. Trust his will and reject some promising temptation? Let go of your cares and troubles and find peace in him? Believe that your sins are truly forgiven and that you don't have to make up for them? Believe that he is the one true God? His invitations to you might not be that much less crazy than his invitation to Peter to walk on water. But Peter came. He hopped down out of that boat and walked right toward Jesus. And as Christians, we do the same. We eagerly follow him. We accept his invitations. His promises are good. His will is good. It's so clear to us until it isn't. When did Peter sink? What changed? More specifically, where did he look or stop looking? It was when he looked at the wind and the waves and the craziness that he was walking on water that he knew he shouldn't be able to walk on. When do we falter in our faith? When do our doubts get the better of us? It's when we look at the wind and waves around us, our guilty consciences, the challenges we face, the heartaches, the worries, those are the waves and the wind that get us scared. And the problem is that those things that are closest to us and easiest for us to see can take front and center stage and we lose sight of Jesus. When those doubts come and we start to sink, the answer is faith. You know what God has promised. You know it. Just believe it. But the way to do this is not to look to your own strength. It's not to ask yourself, do I have more faith? It's, do I have a Savior? It's to look to Jesus. Hear his voice. He's calling to you too. Take courage. It's me. Trust in him to let you walk on whatever waves of doubt come your way. Answer your doubts with faith by looking not to yourself or your own experiences, your own understanding or the things around you, but to your Savior and his love for you. Because he does love you. And even when you sink, he's there for you. Just like he grabbed Peter up out of the water, he'll grab you too. And instead of judgment and wrath, it's going to be with a smile and a laugh and a, 
oh, you of little faith sort of, I told you so. We naturally doubt things that are too good to be true. We also like to doubt things that we don't want to be true. When it comes to God's word and promises, we're not immune from doubt, but we have a God who can walk on water, a God who can make us walk on water. When we look to him, he can answer all our doubts with simple, quiet, confident faith. It's what makes us Christian. Amen.